This is episode 137 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Lauren Barnathan. She's a practicing speech pathologist in St. Petersburg, Florida at Bayfront Medical Center. She began her career in 2010 as a speech pathologist in the school system, specializing in early intervention for children with autism spectrum disorder. After receiving her master's degree in speech language pathology from the University of South Florida, Lauren completed a clinical fellowship year in the acute care setting at Lakeland Regional Health in Lakeland, Florida in 2015. In January of 2018, Lauren suffered a spontaneous carotid dissection, leading to a right middle cerebral artery stroke. She was treated at Tampa General Hospital in Tampa, Florida, where her then fiance and now husband was completing his residency in emergency medicine. After making a near full recovery, Lauren went on to achieve several milestones, including running a half marathon, getting married, and obtaining a sought-after speech pathology position at Tampa General Hospital, working alongside providers who once treated her. Lauren continues to practice speech pathology in the acute care and inpatient rehab settings while focusing on evidence-based research and a holistic, whole patient approach. She and her husband remain committed to sharing her journey on a personal, local, and national level. I just, this could not be any more of an inspiring story. And I am, I think, especially now with COVID-19 going on, I think this is, we're all excited to hear a nice, inspiring story. And Lauren is just amazing. I'm so glad I had the chance to talk to her. And I just love what she said in her way that, that basically having her stroke changed the way that she approaches patients and with just a much more compassionate mindset and a really rigorous approach. She said she really pushes her patients even more now. So hope you guys all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thank you, Lauren. You are amazing. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Do you feel unfulfilled in your career as a medical SLP and perhaps a bit confused on how to even move forward? Do you feel completely overwhelmed, overworked, overstressed, yet completely misunderstood and underappreciated in your facility? Do you feel like you're riding the therapy hamster wheel, unsure if you're even providing good therapy for your patients? When you started practicing medical speech pathology after grad school, did you get overwhelmed with how much medical SLP information was missing from your graduate education? If you've been working in the field for a while, do you feel frustrated that there's no one single centralized source to stay up to date on all the latest research and treatments that are coming out every year? Are you even sure you're providing the right and best, most up-to-date treatment techniques for your patients? Are you sick of paying up to $500 for courses that teach you about just one of the many, many conditions you need to stay up to date on? Imagine if there was one place that you could go to receive all the support and resources to help you eliminate these feelings. Imagine how much time and frustration you would save if you had immediate access to one centralized location for blind peer-reviewed resources. Imagine if you had access to several clinical experts and university professors to help guide you in your clinical decision-making with personalized response to your clinical cases. 
Imagine if you felt you had the detailed, personalized support you needed to succeed in your practice and your career from a wide range of experts and fellow clinicians who care deeply about your career development. Do you think then your patients would receive higher quality care and actually make progress towards their goals? Do you think you would get more rewarded and recognized for this progress among your patients and in your facilities? What if I told you I've created this exact solution? It's called the Medical SLP Collective. It's a monthly membership program and vibrant community of fellow medical SLP clinicians and researchers who are supporting each other to provide better care for their patients and therefore also advance their careers. My name is Kristen West. I'm a pediatric speech-language pathologist that specializes in children with medically complex histories, and I've worked with them in a variety of settings. What I love most about the MedSLP Collective is that it is such a passionate group of speech-language pathologists that really strive to provide the highest level of care to their patients through the implementation of evidence-based practice in our field. It's also such a supportive learning environment where everybody is willing to share their expertise and their knowledge to help grow individuals' professional practice, but also advance our profession. It really is such an interesting and unique learning community. I never have incur- um, I never have encountered anything like that in the field until I joined the Med SLP Collective, and I really can't say enough great things about it. I truly cannot say enough good things about being a part of the Med SLP Collective. It's really changed the way that I approach every single type of patient that I may not have been 100% confident in. So obviously, we want to work within our realm of competency and make sure our patients are getting the best care, but sometimes the job comes with things that we maybe don't feel highly confident on. So I was trained in voice and I was lucky enough to be trained by an incredible voice pathologist and feel very confident in my voice skills. But my entire career I have worked in voice and swallowing institutes and so with the voice people come the swallowing people as well and that's not something I always was very confident in and the Metal SLP Collective has given me so many resources and so much actual information that you can use in the clinic. I've always loved going to conferences and meeting colleagues and networking and being inspired by the researchers, but I always felt lackluster as I came away from it, like I didn't have anything to go home and use. And anytime I'm feeling unsure of anything, I can reach out to a mentor in the group or just the other members. You can go on the website and get instructions on how to do exercises, the rationale behind it, evidence-based practice. It's really just a wealth of knowledge and it has grown my clinical practice immensely and made me feel so much more confident and inspired as a clinician. Hey everybody, Natalie Douglas here from Central Michigan University. And there are so many reasons that I love the Medical SLP Collective and I'm so grateful to be a part of it. Probably the biggest reason is that I love how clinicians are able to approach mentors in ways that specifically solve clinical problems that they're facing right in the moment and get very tailored advice that is supportive and really meeting the needs that they have right then, which I think is such a unique contribution to the profession. I also sincerely appreciate how much Teresa really cultivates a culture of respect and collaboration 
and the resources are just completely top-notch. She has a rigorous peer review process and the resources, again, are based on true SLP need. And I just love how this is an awesome way to merge research and clinical practice in a supportive, collaborative environment. Can't say enough about it. If you are interested in checking out the MedSLP Collective, um, please head over to MedSLPCollective.com and get on the waiting list. Enrollment opens May 17th. Uh, we will be open for about a week and then we will be closing enrollment down. We do have a student rate this time. I know, especially with COVID-19, we have so many grad students that have been displaced from their placements, externships, practicums, and we want to help. So we will have a student rate available. We also do have corporate rates now. So if you are looking to get um, access to the MedSLP Collective for all of the SLPs in your facility or within your corporation, uh, please reach out to us. We'd be happy to work out a rate for you. So again, enrollment opens May 17th. Head to MedSLPCollective.com to get on the waiting list and be the first to be notified. Good morning, Lauren. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. So tell the people a little bit about who you are. So my name is Lauren Barnathan. I am a speech pathologist practicing in acute care and inpatient rehab, Bayfront Hospital in St. Petersburg, Florida. I did formal training for my CFY at Lakeland Hospital in the acute care setting in Lakeland, Florida. And since then, I've been working primarily in acute care and inpatient settings as a speech language pathologist. All right. And unfortunately, I was a patient in one of those hospitals at one point in time for having a large uh, stroke myself. Yes, which is why we're here today. So totally crazy. All right. So where do you want to start, Lauren? Where do we start? <laughs> Let's see. So I had been practicing for about three years in the acute care setting, um, working, of course, with neuro patients. Um, from 2015 and about 2018, while I was working at Lakeland Regional, I was on vacation. And by vacation, I mean staycation because I was really just taking time off to kind of relax and get everything together. I was actually supposed to go to Napa on a wine trip. And thank God that I didn't do that because what happened next would have been awful being in a place that I didn't know with no family. But I did have, I was, I was home one night and or actually... Let me listen from the beginning. So on my vacation, I was actually at Orange Theory Fitness in Tampa, and I was on the treadmill, and I started to notice that I had these visual changes, and it wasn't double vision or blurry vision, so I wasn't overly alarmed, but it felt like a tension in my middle eyes where I couldn't quite focus, but it wasn't quite enough to be blurry, and I thought it was odd, so it kind of stopped, and I even debated um, stepping out to call my husband, who's an emergency medicine, medicine physician, but I, I felt a little bit back to normal. So I went about my day. My husband was at work and I still called him after the class because I'm thinking I had these weird symptoms. I don't feel quite right. So he told me, you know, just go lay down, keep me updated every so often. And he came home that night. Everything else for the rest of the day was pretty normal. And came home that night. We had tea. I normally would be drinking wine, but um, <laughs> I was engaged at the time and trying to get wedding ready. So I was sticking to tea this night and um, everything was normal. We went to bed and we're kind of drifting off to sleep. Ironically enough, we were meditating to try to go to sleep. And I tried to flip over and I kept thrashing around in bed. 
And to me, I wasn't even recognizing the, the symptoms, but my husband's starting to get annoyed. And he's like, what, what are you doing? Like, wh why are you moving around so much? And what I didn't realize was that I was completely hemiplegic on my left side. Oh my and I was trying to turn over. So my husband starts to get really annoyed with me. And when I go back to answer him, my speech is completely slurred. So he immediately flips on the light. I have a crazy facial droop. Of course, immediately he recognizes, whoa, something's not right. It, it was just, it was crazy. I just remember him starting to panic. He kept lifting my left arm, you know, and testing, holding it over my head and, you know, letting it hit me in the face, you know, just to test. And because sometimes, you know, I would joke around with him about different stuff because we have a sick sense of humor in the hospital setting. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, of course I couldn't move my arm. I kept trying to stand up and was falling all over the place. He's calling 911 um, saying my, my wife is having a stroke. I'm in the background yelling at him. I'm fine. I'm I'm fine. I don't need 911. And of course, the whole time I'm slurring my words, falling all over the place. So EMS comes in, they check my blood sugar, they finally get me on the stretcher. And I remember there was, there was three EMS personnel that came in and there was this woman who was there. And um, my husband actually worked with her um, in the EV. And she just kept on asking me, how much have you been drinking? How much have you had to drink tonight? And kind of insinuating that I was drunk. And I was getting so furious because it was just, it was such an insult to, to me and um, just not to be taken seriously. So um, finally, you know, they get me in the ambulance. My husband's calling my, my, one of my best friends is actually working in the trauma bay that evening. We were supposed to hang out the next day. He calls her and says, listen, we have to stroke alert Lauren. I know it sounds crazy, but she's coming in. So luckily I went in, it was a, an extremely scary experience, but I'm one of the lucky ones because you know, there's 15 people over you shouting different things, working, you know, their controlled chaos. But I actually had people that were familiar faces to me, which I cannot even imagine what our patients go through, where there's just random people screaming all over you. They're throwing out medical jargon, talking about TPA and CAT scans. And I luckily, or maybe unluckily, I knew what all of these things were. But you know, it's just, that was my, my first perspective into really what our patients go through and how scary that first impression is. So while they're going through all of this, they cut all my clothes off, my very cute, like Lululemon sports bra and all this stuff. So they go to the CAT scan and it comes back. I have a hyperdense right MCA because I had a clot so large that it physically showed up on the CAT scan as a block, a blockage. So they did administer TPA. And I just remember thinking in my head, oh my gosh, I'm going to have TPA. I'm going to have a hemorrhagic conversion because, you know, as you know, when we reperfuse those vessels, a lot of times the damage is already done so you can bleed out afterwards. And I just, we've seen so much doing what we do and I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have to bleed and I'm going to, you know, everything's going through my head, the worst case scenarios of everything that I've seen. And um, TPA ran out. And so as the TPA is running out, they're wheeling me into interventional radiology, where I actually went in for a from um, the neurosurgeon and the IR lab was called in from home. And they came in and they did a thrombectomy. And it was very successful. I was obviously out the whole time. <laughs> but I remember the CRNA went to go intubate me. And when I get nervous, I start making jokes. I remember telling him, please be careful intubating me. I have the voice of an angel. And he's probably like, shut up. It's a gas. Just go to sleep. 
And so that was really the last thing that I remembered after the thrombectomy. I woke up, it was 3.33 in the morning and they were wheeling me up to ICU. And I just remember my husband, thank goodness, was there. And none of us could sleep because we're in that really critical 24-hour window where we weren't really sure what the outcome was going to be. So yeah, I was up there in the neuro ICU. And um, the next day I actually developed a headache. So everyone started losing their minds, including myself, because that can be an indication for a bleed. So they took me down for an emergent CAT scan and luckily everything was okay. It was just hormone related. Thank you very much. So other than that, um, my recovery following that was pretty speedy. I dodged going to inpatient rehab because my recovery was so quick, which was a blessing and went home and just kind of started doing my own recovery and really doing my own therapy with the help of some of my PT and OT friends. How crazy. It, it was a wild journey. How did your husband handle this? I mean, obviously he sees this all the time, but to have his own wife go through this. He didn't handle it well, and he can describe it a lot better, but he that's really what made me nervous because he sees the worst of the worst. He's normally calm and collected under pressure. And seeing him in such a panicked state, he was crying. He, that was what really tipped me off that this is a situation to be taken really seriously. And um, so he was visibly upset and, you know, very concerned, especially the whole time I was in interventional radiology. The procedure itself takes about 45 minutes on average, but because my carotid arteries were very torturous and curly, it took them about two hours. So he's sitting in the waiting room the whole time just freaking out knowing that something's not right so he he was a mess he was a mess yeah did it was he did he take more of the doctor role or did he take more of the husband role no he he took the husband role for sure he luckily thank god he was allowed in the the trauma bay and in the rooms with me but he just stood off to the side he he had full trust in his colleagues and his nurses and he said this is what they do best i'm just going to step aside and let them do their thing because i can't be rational right now so I need to let my coworkers do what they're trained to do. But he was, he was there and very emotional. But luckily, he has a great team and they took wonderful care of me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Oh, amazing, Lauren. Yeah, so obviously this is a, had a huge impact on your life. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Tell us, it, tell us really how it's, how it's changed everything. And, and, you know, I love that we're going to kind of talk about how it's changed how you view your patients and, and how we speak to them. And yeah. yeah, I'd love to get into that. Absolutely. Well, it's completely changed my life. I did go back to work relatively soon. I went back to work about a month after afterwards, but I did abbreviate my hours because it made, it did make me very tired. And unfortunately, because of the area of where my stroke was, was in the left um, temporal parietal lobe, I do have seizures now. I've had about three since the time of my stroke in 2018. So not too frequently, but that is probably the biggest complication that I have now that's affected me. I can't drive, unfortunately, because of the seizures. And I find myself really just becoming more fatigued than I used to. And I think a lot of that has to do with the anti-seizure medication Keppra that I'm on. It makes me very fatigued throughout the day, very irritable, unfortunately, for my husband. <laughs> but I would think that that would be by far the biggest impact that it's had. I still have some residual left upper extremity weakness that I notice mostly um, when I'm tired and have those recrudescence or reoccurrence symptoms is really when I notice that the most, I, I just get more tired more easily and 
my facial droop will come out, especially when I would have one too many glasses of wine, you really start to see the pronounced facial droop. So um, just subtle things like that. I, I have it very good compared to a lot of our patients and a lot of people that have had suffered strokes. And that's really just to do with the timeliness of the intervention that I've had and the fact that I, I was younger. I was 30 at the time. And um, I was in good physical shape prior to, I didn't have any comorbidities. Yeah. Yeah. That helped a lot. So are they just thinking this just came out of nowhere? Um, at the time we did. So I had a spontaneous carotid artery dissection. So I did have a little bubble in my carotid artery where it had torn, which, you know, we see a lot with trauma patients, chiropractic injuries, different things like that. I unfortunately was getting wedding ready. And I had decided to seek out a very reputable medical spa in the area. And I had gotten some injections, one of which was in that area. And I had a very large bruise right around where my right carotid artery is. And I have a feeling that because of my abnormal anatomy, that it might've been injected in the wrong spot causing that trauma. Luckily for me, my girlfriend, the one who was in in charge of the trauma bay at the time knew that I had gone and gotten these procedures done. So she did get a little bit of a heads up and was able to provide a little bit more history because it is something that I was extremely embarrassed about because I felt like I did this to myself. How can I be so vain? And it's, but I think that it's something, I didn't talk about it for a long time, but I really want to now, especially some of our younger patients that it's, it's actually more common than we give it credit for. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing your story, Lauren. I know it's, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not a problem. I, I do it um, a lot, actually. It's very therapeutic for me. And I find myself sharing it a lot with different patients. Of course, if you read the situation and there's certain patients you feel like you can approach it with in certain families and other ones, you just dodge it all together. But it's brought me a lot of positive feedback with my patients. And I get a lot more buy-in with therapy and explanations, knowing that I've gone through something similar and can help them if it's inspiring them or helping them navigate things. It's, it's been wonderful, I think, for both sides. Yeah. How has, that, how has that changed the way you approach patients? Well, for one, I think, well, I know I'm a lot less conservative now <laughs> with how I treat patients. I do think a lot of that is to do with experience, of course. Um, you know, but for example, I did... I went through a swallow eval with some of my friends at the time, which was interesting altogether, but um, (laughs) um, they were nice enough not to give me a cog eval because I probably would have failed some of the mathematics just at baseline. Yeah. But I'm significantly less conservative with the way that I practice. And a lot of that had to do with just deficits that I saw. I mean, I was dysarthric for a while. And I, I remember I woke up at three in the morning one time and I had eaten takeout chicken. If anybody's from the Tampa Bay area, Chichio's restaurant is my absolute favorite. So I had Chichio's to go brought in and I woke up and I had pocketed a large chunk of chicken in my left side. And I remember waking up thinking, oh my God, I'm pocketing food. This is crazy. And a lot of times I've seen clinicians in the past and I very well may have done so myself that are so overly concerned with these things, pocketing and reduced mastication. And they'd put somebody on a pureed diet or mechanical soft just for something like that. Instead of looking at the whole picture, you know, like a young 30 year old that's pocketing a piece of chicken. And, you know, just thinking about the whole picture has, it's really changed 
the way that I look at patients. You know, everybody comes in. I think we, you had a post recently about starting with a clean, somebody commented starting with a clean slate. Every patient has a clean slate and kind of looking at the whole picture, age, comorbidities, all of that. It's made me significantly less conservative by far and a lot more empathetic as well. I do, and also a lot more strict because some of the patients, I'm like, you are capable of more. Yeah. I know that you are. We let's push it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, good. I love that. I, I think that's a huge thing. I have a son with special needs that, you know, it's, it's, we've had a lot of therapists, unfortunately. And the ones, you know, he doesn't like it. You know, I mean, he screams, he cries sometimes, but gets through it and it's great. You know, and it's like, I want the therapists that are going to push him to get better and absolutely it's not a gravy train (laughs) but yeah you you do it's a very delicate dance between pushing too much to the point where you kind of tarnish that relationship or how they view therapy between pushing just enough to make that breakthrough for them and I think you know being in situations where you're a lot more relatable to your patients by sharing personal experiences I'm not just some girl bippity boppity booing into your room saying oh do this exercise or i'm sorry you can't eat here's this peg tube you know if you kind of you know explain more my mom unfortunately has recently passed away after a long battle with progressive supranuclear palsy and every once in a while i'll share stories with some of my neuro patients obviously not about her passing but you know just some of the difficulties that as a family we had to navigate through And it just makes you so much more relatable because you're not just the clinician, you're kind of a safe harbor for them. Yeah. Yeah. And you really understand. I think there's so much to be said about just taking the time to talk to your patients and explain things and hear what they're going through. And, and like, that's one of the things that I love about, you know, doing mobile fees. I don't have productivity requirements. I can sit and talk to them all day, you know, but that's one thing that I just really try to make a point of, you know, I'm about to stick something up your nose. Like, I, you know, you got to establish a little rapport first <laughs> before you just do that. Absolutely. But it's, it's interesting how much patients will open up and how much they say they appreciate you just taking a few minutes to ask them how they're doing, how they're experiencing things, how their family's handling things. And, you know, it just, it, it really goes, I think, a lot farther than we give it credit for. Absolutely. And ga- by asking them, like you said, gauging their understanding, because yes, this physician may have spent 30 minutes in the room speaking with the patient and the family, but how much of that did they really comprehend and how much are they really understanding? You know, using visuals, I'm a huge fan of that, especially when speaking about aspiration and talking about the different injuries and, and insults that you can have with certain disorders. I think visuals are huge and really just breaking it down. It does take more time and it does hinder productivity, but at the end of the day, you get so, your outcomes become so much better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Lauren. Let's see. So let's talk about kind of the mental recovery that you've had to go through. Yes. That was, um, that's something that I never expected. I never thought twice really about it. Even when I was treating my patients, I understood that they're going through a hard time. They're experiencing somewhat of a loss in a sense, but I never really fully understood how that felt and how much of a recovery would impact or how much of an impact that would have on recovery. At Tampa General Hospital, I where I worked, I floated to inpatient rehab quite a bit, and we had a wonderful neuropsych team that would see patients, and they were part of the whole 
package to see different patients based on certain needs. And I thought that that was wonderful to include in therapy. And myself, I didn't experience that because like I said, I was discharged home. And here I am, I'm even though I look fine and I move fine and I can exercise and I can do all these things, I still feel like part of me kind of died inside a little bit. I still do have deficits. There's things that I can't do like driving, of course, now is one of them. I feel completely helpless sometimes. I can't just get in the car and drive to the store. I had to relocate my job because of the fact that my husband and I moved across Tampa Bay and I could no longer drive to my old hospital. So I had to find a new job and just little things like that has, it's really, it's taken its toll quite a bit. I'm sure. Thank you for sharing that, Lauren. Yeah, it's some, it's, I really struggled with it because I had strived so hard to get my dream do- job at Tampa General, which is where I was treated for my stroke and where my husband did his residency. And I loved working there and it, I was, I just worked so hard. And then to have to give that up, it was like a dagger to the gut. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So that was, that was hard from a professional standpoint. Yeah, I'm sure. All right. So let's see, where are we? Let's, um, so let's talk a little bit about like involving patients and families in the POC? Sure. So going back to the loss of independence, I do see, especially when I do therapy with patients, I'm not just evaluating them. I'm actually getting into therapy. I'll see, and right now I'm currently working PRN, so I will follow up with patients on that basis. And, you know, I see, and I'm not saying that I've never done this before, so this is no dig at any clinician in particular, but, you know, they'll give them a WALK worksheet where you're balancing a checkbook. And I ask my patients, do you use a checkbook? No, I do all my banking on my online app. Well, yeah, of course you do. So I'm thinking, how is this functional? And I'm, I'm thinking also, if I was in therapy, I'd be like, no, I use my Bank of America app on my phone. Like, I don't, I don't even know how to balance a checkbook anymore. So, you know, making sure that our tasks are really functional for patients. For me personally, when I lost my ability to drive, knowing how to download and use Uber, knowing how to download and use Shipt. Those are all aspects that I include in my therapy, especially for my tech savvy patients, which even our older patients, a lot of them, they can work yeah. their smartphones really, yeah. really well. So, you know, we'll spend a therapy session, you know, I'll show them, okay, this is what app you use. Show me how you get to the app. If you wanted to go to Publix, how would you call or not call, but request an Uber or things like that. Really functional stuff, which I think a lot of our therapy is outdated. And so just make, and you don't get a lot of buy-in. They're like, oh, I have to do this stupid worksheet again, or I have to do this again. I don't even do this in real life. And you're like, well, I'm sorry. This is what was left for me to give you. And it's, I would be frustrated too. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything in my life. Like memorizing a set of five numbers that mean nothing to me or memorizing a set of five words that mean zero things to me versus memorizing, you know, my grandchildren's names or things like that. So, you know, just really involving, making sure it's functional, showing examples to families, because a lot of times we'll be like, oh, you can just do this exercise and this exercise and this exercise. And if there's no family there, the patient either isn't going to tell them or won't remember to tell them. And so, you know, making sure that the families really understand, incorporate those exercises. I, especially the education portion, and that was what was frustrating for me is when I did have my stroke at Tampa General, 
they would read off a few things or text my husband and be like, oh, the results of this, this, and this, thinking my husband's just going to tell me. Well, half the time things would happen, it would just get lost in communication. So they'd be like, oh, well, you had an infarct in your basal ganglia and here and here. And I'm thinking, what? Nobody ever told me that. You know, they're talking to just the family and not the patient and the family. And so that for me was frustrating. So I know it's frustrating for our patients. And so really just making sure that you're including everyone. And even with our dementia patients or our cognitive patients, that you're not quite sure their level of understanding, I still address them just as if they were part of the conversation and understanding. Because sometimes you really don't know our patients, how, what, especially, well, speaking with regard to receptive deficits and things like that, I'll speak to the family and address the patient at the same time, because I think it's for the dignity of the patient and it's the right thing to do. And the families are very receptive to that too. They like seeing their family member treated with respect. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love this, Lauren. I can't thank you enough for sharing this with all of us. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I have so many. You're so lucky that I'm not able to drink right now. Well, I, oh. it is 1030 in the morning. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm pregnant during quarantine, so oh, I can't have any wine. Congratulations. Oh, yeah. I know. I, I was pregnant all last year. It's it's the worst. I, I, I know you feel the struggle. Too. <laughs> I do. Just want some dang wine. Yeah. I hear you. Oh, I do. Well, I have, I have so many, like my brains are running a million miles a minute now, Lauren. So what, you know, I feel like I, I, I was just about to say something and I'm going to say it, but I feel like you've been given this gift almost and I... No, I know having a stroke is not a gift, but <laughs> you've been given this this gift that I feel like you should share with the world more, you know, and, and what, what 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 lies in the future for you? You know, how are you going to use this experience? Because I just feel like you have so much deep insight into this and, and it would be such a gift to share that with patients is, I guess, what I was trying to say. So absolutely, absolutely. that came out weird. No, no, I, I tell people all the time, I think in a very weird way, the stroke was by far the best thing to ever happen to me. It's made me view, it's, I know it's going to sound cheesy, but it's made me view life like completely differently. Yeah, yeah, I could imagine. You know, I still love my trashy reality housewives TV shows, but half the time I'm watching it, I'm like, you guys are really arguing over this. There's so much more important stuff that's going on. <laughs> but no, I mean, uh, my husband and I, well, we were engaged at the time of my stroke. We got married immediately. I woke up the next day and my husband said, we're not wasting another minute. We're getting married right away because just in case something ever happened. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's like I said, it's um, changed the way that I practice. I have been involved. Tampa General, when I was still working there, had a wonderful stroke support group that was for current patients and previous patients that I spoke at, and they still run it regularly. I don't know what's going on with the COVID stuff, but I, I loved getting involved. We've done several interviews on a local and national level, and I, I feel that I'm doing a pretty decent job by connecting with my patients, but I am at a crossroads where I have this itch. I do want to do more. I just don't really know how or what. And I'm really, I'm so anxious. I'm like chomping at the bit. I want to know what's next. I don't know what's next. I want to, I do want to do something on a grander scale. And I have, I do have the resources. I just don't know what that looks like right now. So I might you actually- writing a book or anything? I, no, I've never considered that actually. It would be interesting. I know I love uh, Jill Bolte-Taylor's book, My Stroke of Insight. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking yes. of. Yes. I read yes. that in graduate school and actually- I did too. Yeah. 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 I had, yeah. I had a, mel a, a mental meltdown not too long after I had my stroke. I remember going on Amazon. I'm like, I need this book because I had started journaling and um, 
I've since stopped it, but I do, I do want to do something. I just don't really know what that looks like. But the biggest, the, the biggest reward for me is to continue working with patients as well. I love that one-on-one. I love the hospital setting and really, you know, pulling up a chair and sitting down and talking to patients and still continuing that one-on-one personal level. But I do want to take it to the next level. I'm just not quite sure what that looks like yet. And now we have baby girl on the way. So who knows yeah. what's going to happen? Yeah. That'll inspire you to do it even more. So that's true. That's very true. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. Uh-huh. I got really clear on what I wanted to do with my life once I had my first son. So interesting. Okay. Yeah. No, I would love to do something like that. There's just been so, so much stuff that has happened be- in our family between, you know, navigating my mom's illness and then this illness and there's just so much that I feel like you just have so much that you could share that especially having your husband be in emergency medicine too there's so many points of view that you guys could share that I think would just help so many people navigate this absolutely situation yeah and he he's even said that it's made him a better physician and just the way that he communicates with families and and things like that because he has been that person sitting in the waiting room not getting any news wondering if your loved one is okay or not okay and you know, even with all the connections that he had at the time, he was still relegated to the waiting room, you know? So it, it's really changed a lot for us. And we're going to keep sharing and continue to share this story. I was so glad that when this opportunity came up, because I felt like we kind of hit a lull between moving and switching jobs. We really weren't quite sure where the next opportunity would present itself. So it's been a blessing to get to connect with you. And I'm so glad that Marissa made it happen. Yeah, of course. Of course. Is there anything else you want to share? Look, I mean, I have so, it's one of those, I feel like it's almost a casual conversation. I know that sounds weird, a casual conversation about stroke, but it's just one of those things that it just happens so naturally. I'll just get to talking about people or talking to people and it just sort of evolves from there. But no, we're just, the field of neurology, it's just amazing to me. It's really made me want to I used to be all about trauma, 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 trauma. I love my trauma patients. And now I'm like my neuro peeps, they have my heart. So um, there's just a lot of a lot of stuff in the works that's going on. And I'm curious to continue working with everyone. There is a study that I was actually able to be a part of. I was um, one of the first few people to actually give a blood sample. And they're using the blood samples in potential stroke patients. And the idea is that they're able to identify these markers or RNA in the blood very early on so they can triage patients to stroke centers. So for example, if you get a call of a potential stroke, the ambulance shows up, they're able to actually administer this blood test on the ambulance, determine if this patient is at risk for an ischemic stroke and transfer them to the appropriate stroke center versus a smaller community hospital. I think that is really cool. And I was really happy to contribute to that study. And there's just so much coming out with regard to time is brain and interventions. And I'm so I'm excited to see that translate. And I'm excited to see therapy evolving too. I have a lot of ideas that I feel I can contribute to different therapy modalities or apps and things like that, just based on what I've seen my needs be. And there's quite a few of us young stroke survivors out there that we've been brainstorming back and forth of what we think is functional and what other people could use too. Yeah. Keep an eye yeah. out for that. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story, thank Lauren. Thank you. I hope it was cohesive. I have a tendency to 
wander with my thoughts. Yeah, yeah, no, it was great. Thank you so much. Absolutely. No, it was a pleasure. I'm just, I'm, like I said, I'm happy to share my story. And if it can help one person or shape one student or inspire someone to do anything, it's, it's worth it, right, for sure. It is. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank Thank you so much to all of you for listening.